0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash film.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to SlashFilm Daily for Friday, July 31st, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash SlashFilm Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on to his podcast is SlashFilm Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer... Hi, Billy.
2: Hey, everyone.
1: So, uh, this week was Comic Con, or last week, this past weekend, it was, was Comic Con. Uh, t- talked about that briefly on a podcast earlier this week. Uh, HT, how was your Comic Con at, at home?
2: You know, it was very relaxed compared to last year, but I still did miss that community experience that I got um, last year. It was just something I, – I, I I, talked about this uh, with Ben on yesterday's podcast, but I had a good time at last year's Comic-Con, and I feel like that was a big anomaly. And I, I miss <laughs> it all still. I, I want to go back and have that big Comic-Con experience, make those connections, um, see random celebrities while I'm chowing down on mushroom burgers. So uh, the this, this- – <laughs> the virtual version wasn't as fun some of the panels were fun to watch but um they either didn't give us a lot of news or they were just kind of a little bit underwhelming sometimes um i will say i did enjoy the bill and ted face the music panel that i watched but um yeah it was just kind of a a little bit meh this year a little bit of a a shrug of a an event
1: yeah i think that's probably the the feeling all around I guess, you know, we got to go back next year, HD. We got to go back. Got to go back. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Ben, we, we saw some photos of your office. It's like a Lost-themed office.
0: Yeah, uh, I've been, you know, I, I moved into this house in, here in Florida like two months ago-ish. And so I've just been slowly, my wife and I have been slowly going through and trying to, you know, get all the rooms uh, the way we want them to look. And my office was the first room that we tackled. And I decided to do sort of a... Yeah, like a kind of like a minimalist Lost theme. Um, so maybe we can, I don't know, link to some of the photos or something in the, in the show notes. I don't know how that works, Peter. You can figure it out.
1: But, do, you, uh, do you have the photos on Instagram? Uh,
0: no, I don't. But yeah, maybe I'll just post them there, and then we can we'll make it easy for everybody. But um, yeah, there is some some cool stuff. It's a uh, yeah. I just I, I like the the space. I like Lost, and um, it it
1: feels like a good uh, a good
0: yeah space to occupy when I am slash filming all
1: day. I love the minimalistic feel of this and I was, I am surprised to see how many, like so many musical instruments in this room. There's something I didn't know about you, Ben. You're a musician? Well, I, I've played guitar since I was 15, but I'm not very good at it. Um, so I, I
0: like, you know, noodling around and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, my wife bought me like a, a, a keyboard, like a, a piano kind of keyboard and a ukulele. And I have no idea how to play either of those, but I just like <laughs> messing with them. And so occasionally I'll like plug them into my computer and, uh, you know, mess around in GarageBand and, and. Make bizarre noises with all the crazy effects and stuff um, but but no i I'm not, I don't have like like uh, ben pearson's first solo album is not coming soon, so ben, don't worry ben, about
2: that you and Chris as the two musicians of slash film should start a slash film band. You know, we're halfway to a slash film band basically. We just need everyone else just needs to learn how to play instruments and or sing. All
0: right. Well, I can't wait for some one of you has to have like uh, you know, somebody plays the triangle, somebody plays like the dibs uh, dibs dibs the, the tambourine. We got to get some I, I could maybe handle
1: the tambourine. I could maybe <laughs> figure that out. All right. Let's do it. Okay, let's jump into what what we've been doing. Uh, you know, we haven't had a water cooler in two weeks, so uh, I haven't been doing anything this past week, really. I've just been staying home, but the week before that, I went out to a theme park in Southern California. Uh, I mean, no theme parks are open in Southern California, so you're probably asking yourself, Peter, how did you get into a theme park? That's because Knott's Berry Farm uh, found a loophole. They they reopened their theme park without rides. Uh, instead, they're doing the this food festival. It's called the Taste of Calico, and this is where they're opening up the ghost town portion of the theme park. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Knott's Berry Farm, uh, I think at the gate of this theme park, it's in Buena Park, California. It says America's first theme park, and that's because I think it it predates Disneyland. And it started out as this uh food stand on the side of the road and became Mrs. Knott's chicken dinner restaurant, which I think I talked about in a previous episode of this, but they uh they're famous for growing boysenberries. So they've had like boysenberry festivals. And what, what they um at this chicken dinner restaurant, they used to have so many people that would come from all around to go there that they built this like ghost town uh based on calico the old uh, ghost town, like uh, old western town and it 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 grew and grew and became this big like western facade um and it eventually became a, th- a theme park i think maybe after disneyland launch uh uh started it became a theme park but um so it's existed for a long time it's very charming it's this very like uh you you walk through the streets of like an old western town and there's like usually characters that interact with you and stuff like that uh what they did was they before covid hit us before the pandemic hit us Knott's was gearing up for their hundredth year anniversary, and they were going to have this huge boysenberry festival. And uh, that's where this, this berry that they, I guess uh, produced, because I think they're like the ones that actually were the origin of this berry boysenberry. Uh, they they would put that in all sorts of kinds of foods and stuff. And then the pandemic hit and that festival never happened. So they basically opened up a smaller version of that festival, in Knott's Berry Farm without any rides. Uh you pay uh what happened is you pay twenty five dollars, you'd get a tasting ticket for five dishes or drinks, and that tasting ticket would give you admission to the park. Uh so and uh they were doing it only on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh we went the first weekend of the event and uh they were i'm guessing a lot of people are probably wondering you know how, how does this work in the era of a pandemic and social distancing and this this works because they only opened up enough people that could get this tasting second i think it was like 10 to 15 percent capacity so there wasn't very many people i think it was like a few hundred people total in this you know half of the steam park basically and uh that said, there's nine booths and every booth, like, because everybody had five tickets to to get food, uh, everybody had to go into the booths like five times. So that led to long lines. The lines were social distanced. Uh, the food was really good. Uh, they later, after I went, added more booths so that there was not as long of lines because some of the lines when I was there were upwards of an hour long. Uh, not all of them. They were generally like 15 20 minutes but uh they have since fixed that people have been enjoying this the knots taste of calco uh we did a video on it for ordinary adventures i'll link that in the show notes um and Knots. this was such a success that they have announced that they are doing a taste of knots event i think starting next month in august and that's going to open up the entire theme park there's going to be more booths more food i'll say this much i i uh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure why, but it was very comforting to be walking through, like, these themed old Western, like, uh, theme park place. But it was also weird that, like, you're walking, like, underneath roller coasters that are not functioning. And it's weird to be in a theme park where the rides are not working. Uh, but I, I I would highly recommend it to anybody in Southern California that feels – uh. You know that doesn't feel bad about leaving their house uh you know your your safety is obviously you know it's all in the mind of beholder like you know if, if you feel like it's safe enough to go out i'll say this that they they are taking it seriously at these theme parks at knots they have like a whole like thermal imaging temperature check as you go in there's uh cast members all or i'm not sure what the knots calls their employees it's not cast members that's a disney thing but uh the, the cast members all over wiping things down making sure everybody's socially distancing there's uh sanitizers like everywhere which i guess kind of breaks the immersion of this old western town but who cares uh, so i don't know i i really enjoyed myself i'll put a link to that video in the show notes if you want to check it out and that was not taste of calico brad what have you been up to
3: Well, um, we talked about Comic-Con a little bit uh, yesterday, and one of the things that I mentioned that I was uh, actually pleased by with Comic-Con was the ability to get uh, all of the Comic-Con exclusives that I wanted, uh, because everything was online, didn't have to run around the show floor, and uh, there were some challenges that presented themselves, funnily enough, tied to the little complaining I did about uh, how terrible it is to sometimes order something that has limited quantities from... Uh, retail outlets when they're exclusive, but um, I was able to get the, the um, two of the Hallmark uh, ornaments that were exclusives to Comic Con. I wanted the Probe Droid and uh, Snape dressed up in uh, Neville Longbottom's grandmother's uh, clothes from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and I got. Uh, some of the Funko Pops that I wanted, which the Funko Pop one was actually, that was a nightmare for them and everyone who was trying to get a hold of uh, some of those exclusives. Thankfully, the ones that were creating problems, I didn't want. But even so, because the site was so overloaded, they had an issue where when you went, if you, after you waited in line for an extended period of time, they have that digital queue and then you selected your stuff, put in your cart. But then once you got to your cart to check out, they had a problem where the shipping rates were taking forever forever. To load, some people were waiting 20, 30 minutes for it to come up. And because of that, some people ended up missing out on items that they had in their cart because, for whatever reason, some people that showed up to the site after they did were able to get through easier and didn't have the same issues. So the, the virtual shop that they had for their exclusives was only active for like an hour. And then they said that everything was sold out. I kind of find it hard to believe that everything did sell out because lots of stuff was still in stock um at least it seems so when i went back on in a different out or a different tab rather um so i i wonder if they just got overloaded and decided to to can it but um yeah so it's uh i would say that it was a success in that regard but otherwise comic-con was not all that successful
1: <laughs> i i didn't really buy anything at comic-con this year i bought this star wars poster that mondo released but that was a timed edition so it, it there was not really like the rush to have to oh no that's a lie hallmark came out with some ornaments that were exclusive to comic-con that's what i was just the... talking,
3: talking about at the beginning yeah 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 yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I i forgot that i ended up purchasing one of those i ended up purchasing the probe droid but i got it on ebay Oof, I bet yeah. that was rough. yeah it was expensive um Um, and
3: then so here's here's a random thing that happened so a while back uh in our eating section i talked about trying the new secret recipe fries from kfc um and apparently we had received them here at our location as um i don't know if it was like it was just an early test or what it was because apparently they weren't everywhere at that time because only just recently in the past couple weeks did they roll out those fries to all of their locations and so in support of that uh kfc reached out to me on twitter because they saw a tweet i made about the fries back in april and i said that they were a new contender for best fast food fries and they wanted to use that in um like a promotion that they did so they asked if they could and i was like yeah and they're like cool and then we'll send you um a a year's um supply not a year supply but a year's worth of a secret recipe fries which translates to $250 in KFC gift cards. <laughs> <laughs> so if I ever want to go to KFC, now I am I am set for a while. <laughs> but the problem is you can't use those on
1: Postmates, right? Or like if you get delivery. Well, do you do, you do that where you live? Probably not. Not usually. Drive, yeah.
3: yeah, it's usually not worth it. So but I I do I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it would work on Postmates or not because I don't know if you can redeem those gift cards for restaurants through there. Probably not, but yeah.
1: So, Brad, how are we supposed to trust your food reviews now that we know that when you give a good review, you get, you get, you get a kickback? Well, yeah, from the well, company.
3: yeah. All I'm going to be doing now is saying everything is great just so I can get gift cards all over the place. So look, look out because Twitter is going to be full of me loving all sorts of things.
1: <laughs> just to be clear, this does not happen in the movie world, <laughs> and we, we would not accept it if it did happen. So, yeah, uh, okay. Uh, HD, what have you been up to?
2: I guested on Chris's 21st Century Spielberg podcast on an episode about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and the adventures of Tintin. And yes, that is the pronunciation of Tintin that blew Chris's mind during the episode and made him question everything that he knew. Wait, wait, um,
1: wait. How is it
2: pronounced? Tintin.
1: Because it's (laughs) Belgian, Peter. (laughs) Wait, wait, so where do people say that?
2: France, okay. <laughs> well, it's because I um, my parents grew up reading the Tintin comics, and they passed it on to me, and that's how they introduced it to me. And so it was very funny when people started saying Tintin during the movie, and I was like, "Oh, I guess that's how everyone else pronounces it." But during the podcast, I tried to sound. Not like a raging snob and pronounce it just like Tintin for the rest of the episode. And um, <laughs> I, recommend, I recommend listening to it. It's a fun conversation. Chris and I defend the uh, nuking the fridge scene in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And um, just talk about how Spielberg should do more animated movies. So that's um, the 21st Century Spielberg podcast, most recent bonus episode. And that's available on podcasting platforms. Most I, I, I think most of them. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Listen to it
1: podcasting platforms everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, Jacob. What have you been watching this week? I watched the first few episodes of Juon
4: Origins, the new Netflix series. Uh, the Juon franchise is a Japanese horror franchise, better known in the United States as The Grudge. They're the same thing, more or less. Even though American films tie back to Japanese movies. There've been thirteen films, a bunch of comics, you know, tons of novels in Japan. It's a major, major franchise overseas. You know, there's you know been a handful of American films, and Juon Origins is a very strange beast because. It assumes that the Juwan franchise that we've seen before was based on real events that exaggerated everything and distorted it into like like crazy horror proportions, and the series attempts to tell the actual quote unquote true story behind the franchise uh, and behind the um, ghostly hauntings that came from it. So it ends up being this very different film from the rest of the japanese entries in the series it's very stripped down very serious the scares are few and far between more about atmosphere and dread than about things jumping out at you uh, i'm not sure how i feel about it yet because i was expecting something more traditional and traditionally aligned with what juan slash the grudge is and has been and will be uh but it's it feels like you know it, it feels very adult in a weird way, whereas the previous films are very much lowest common denominator uh, Japanese horror film. I say that with a little bit of love because I, I do enjoy plenty of them. Uh, this one feels like it wants to take the gravity of the situation far more seriously and doesn't really – it isn't, doesn't treat uh, lightly the idea of uh, something happening so horrible that creates an evil curse that can haunt entire generations. Uh, but HT, were you familiar with Juan before you watched this? Because uh, I, I was kind of surprised I saw you watch this.
2: Yeah. I've, well, I wasn't really... I wasn't super <laughs> familiar with it. I had seen, I think, one of the Japanese films a, a while ago. And uh, I'm familiar with the franchise as a whole. And I decided to just check out the ju Origins series on Netflix. And I can't say I liked it that much. I feel like it's very much for for people who are hardcore fans of the ju franchise. And as someone who knows it only in a very casual sense, um, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, I think that It is trying to tackle specifically uh, issues of domestic abuse and domestic violence and rape and assault in a way that is heavy-handed and a little clumsy. And um, I watched the first three episodes of this. Um, It does a good job of kind of keeping you hooked and keeping you uh, interested in where it's going. But I think that it just – the fact that it just kind of keeps – I don't really know where it's going is I think the problem like oh where it just kind of keeps going and keeps telling these stories and going jumping from generation to generation and I'm like okay I'm not really sure what the end goal of this is other than just the creation of the curse I guess but um, yeah I I can't say I enjoy it that much even the I feel like the dread which is a major part of the Japanese films too is uh, a little too underplayed in this series so much so that it feels like a little bit more domestic and um like a just a basic japanese drama with some scary and disturbing elements versus an actual horror series
4: yeah i think i agree with most of the hd i'm not sure if i'll finish it it's definitely interesting i'm glad that exists and as somebody who's the lone defender on planet earth of 2020's the grudge film <laughs> earlier this year nickel uh, pesci directed uh, i'm glad that you know it's still out there and still making these movies or, or tv shows uh but yeah i, I watched the first few episodes and thought, man, I wish this was scarier. I wish that it was tying this drama into, you know, something that was a bit more a bit more thrilling, a bit more actively exciting. Because as much as people didn't like the most recent Grudge movie, like I'm, I'm its defender, uh, it managed to really tackle a lot of, like, a lot of uh, ideas haunting modern-day America while having ghosts jump out of people. Whereas this is, I think, as you said, uh, clumsy. But I A for effort, maybe C plus for execution, not for me
2: yeah i think so
1: it'd be funny if someone was like wanting to jump into the the juan series and was like oh origin so that's like a prequel i'll start here
4: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is uh it's very much built for people who are familiar with the rest of the franchise which is a weird thing to just drop on netflix this is a netflix production it's uh especially since a lot of people watching this may be familiar with the grudge movies from America. And this is just like saying, what if the grudge very serious
1: with far fewer scares? Okay. I only have one show I want to talk about this week, but I did watch two seasons of it. This is a show that's on Netflix that probably none of you have ever heard of before. I know I didn't. And I mentioned on Twitter, a lot of people didn't know about it. It's called how to sell drugs fast. And then in parentheses online. Uh, and this is a German coming of age series. It's, uh, I guess it's kind of like Breaking Bad, but with two German high school teenagers. It has a lot of the regular high school stuff, you know, first love, first breakup, alienation. But mixed with that, it's these two guys that are, uh, you know, nerds, geeks, wallflowers, whatever you want to call them, that, uh, they, start a their own business which is selling drugs online and how it comes to that is a little bit of convoluted uh bit of storytelling but it's it's compelling nonetheless um this series has kind of um it's hard to explain It, it feels very scott pilgrim in the way that it's tone and how it kind of like approaches things. It has some like stylistic choices that are very, very interesting. I think even if you don't end up liking the series, you should watch the first episode because it does some really, really interesting things. Um, I, it, it is made for Netflix. I'll say that so that it's, you know, is produced for Netflix and does some interesting things that could only be done on Netflix. So, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give. No, I'm not gonna spoil this. But there's something very interesting in the first episode. I've never seen any other show ever do before. So I'll, I'll say that uh, there's. <laughs> it has these like weird points where like they're you know, they have to explain this complex thing like a certain drug or the dark web. And they will have, uh, you know, Jonathan Fricks will come on screen to give us a lesson on the dark web. Um, It's, uh, there's, it uses a lot of technology on screen in very creative, clever ways. Uh, The show, I wouldn't say it's realistic. It's not like, I, I feel like Breaking Bad, there's a level of realism there even though you know in general the idea of what happens there is kind of ridiculous here it's a a little bit less believable but it's still fun and compelling uh and but it's not just fun it it kind of has a subtext of dealing with privacy and online identities controlling our real lives and it, it says some interesting things there each episode is 25 minutes long and the seasons are six episode six episodes each so there's 12 episodes in total on there now the first two seasons i would say the first season is a lot better than the second but i would highly 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 recommend you check out how to sell drugs fast online on netflix um because i don't know it's a lot of fun i think i think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast would would really enjoy the kind of tone and feel of this show it's just and also Interestingly enough, this is a German show that uh, I guess it was dubbed for the UK, so it has like a British language track that was the default, and I oftentimes change that back to the the original language and you know go subtitles. But the 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 British language track was actually very very good. So if uh, you know, I I don't, I don't know how many of you guys out there, but like when I have to watch something with subtitles, like it, it is a, a different level of attention that you got to give the program. Not that like I'm on my phone watching stuff like a savage, but you know, it's not like you can kind of like lay back and pet your dog and like, you know, you kind of kind of pay attention. So, so I, I really enjoyed that. There was actually a dub track for this. that was good acting it was not distracting and, uh, you know, let me kind of sit back and take in some of the visual flourishes of this show. So, uh, how to sell drugs fast online on Netflix. Jacob, what have you been watching?
4: Oh, I've been embarking on a project I can't quite talk about just yet, but uh, soon. But as part of a break from that project, I watched 2009 Star Trek by J.J. Abrams, a film I've seen maybe 20 times. <laughs> and... Uh, Goodness, I love this movie. I think the the first half is the second best thing J.J. Abrams has ever directed, right after the first half of The Force Awakens. (laughs) He's really good at his first halves. Uh, I think the cast of this movie is so good, and they capture so much of the uh, spirit and uh, energy of the original series in a way that feels relevant and updated to modern sensibilities. And I also like Star Trek Beyond, and I hate Star Trek in the Darkness. uh, But there's something special about this movie, something that feels uh, like the the world was, or the universe was this franchise's oyster when the credits roll in this and they kind of squandered it with the sequel. Uh, And now it looks like the star Trek movie franchise has been uh, put out the pasture while the while the TV series thrive. But this is just one of those movies that I, I put it on at least once a year and I am overwhelmed by how much I like it. It, it, it holds up so well. And the second half, not as good as the first half, but it's, it really felt like a moment where Star Trek re-emerged, engaged and ready to like fight for its life after Star Trek Nemesis nearly killed it a few years earlier. And that's yeah. always something special for me that uh, that Star Trek came back with people who gave, who gave a shit. Like Star Trek, Star Trek Nemesis is directed by a filmmaker who in the press openly talked about how much he did not know about Star Trek and like bragged about it. And it shows. And with this one, DJ Abrams was a situation where he also did not know Star Trek, but he approached it with, with care and reverence in a way that shows and uh 2009 star trek i don't know if it's streaming anywhere i, 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 I have it on blu-ray uh i think it's a fantastic film and i i it holds up so well just out of curiosity around the table who here also <laughs> thinks this movie is spectacular
3: it's amazing i, I
0: really really ah. like this movie a
3: lot yeah, yeah absolutely and I, I especially love uh michael giacchino's score for this movie i could listen to the score for this movie over and over again it's so good
1: yeah th- that opening is so emotional I mean, Kino you know, is just the master of that. Like, if but I do think, like, you know, as much as Into Darkness is was a, a big disappointment, I do think that the like the momentum for this franchise it was like such a you're right it was like such like a fresh breath of air for this franchise. It felt like this was gonna be like a new huge thing but i think like paramount waiting for jj abrams to come back and like they they waited too many years i think is what, what kind of happened and then once it you know that second one hit it was not you know as embraced
4: yeah like so, i think and i think beyond is actually a really solid movie that, uh, also i think works maybe a different frequency than the first jj abrams one about a frequency that i think is also true to what star trek is in its own special way but yeah um I, I like the current CBS Star Trek shows. I know they're controversial amongst the fan base right now, like all Star Trek things are at the time they're being released. And I'm happy with what's happening right now with, with Star Trek on CBS. Uh, but man, um, this is one of those movies that's just like some, located somewhere near, dear, and close to my heart. Uh, yeah. And we'll talk about more about Star Trek in the near future. Uh, that's, that's, like I said, I hate to keep teasing, but we will. Uh, I also watched a whole bunch of horror movies. Uh, I watched Relic, which is a, a new film I played at Sundance. Uh, directed by full uh, per name Natalie Erica James, and this is a film about a mother and daughter in Australia who return to her uh, mother's childhood home after um, the grandmother goes missing. Uh, they find her; she's suffering from dementia, and really bad stuff starts to happen in the house as they care for her. And it's it reminded me a lot of the Babadook in that it uses you know a haunted house scenario as a metaphor for you know something that feels very real that we can all we all know about if public was about grief then relic is about you know um death and about dimension watching someone you love fade away and it's a bit of a slow burn the first hour or so is very much a domestic drama punctuated by moments of horror and the last half hour becomes a straight up nightmare fest i loved it it becomes a so many practical effects and amazing production design and gross, dripping things, with a really emotional, stirring, uh, unsettling ending. Uh, relic is currently available for, for renting rental on all the various services. You know, uh, I rented it on Amazon. It's worth the f- four, nine, nine, five, nine, nine, whatever they're asking for. It is a really terrific movie. I hope we talk about more in the future. Uh, You'll make a great double feature with Amulet, another Sundance horror film that I rented on Amazon, also worth $5.99 or whatever it is. Uh, So it's another female-directed film. This is uh, from Ramola Gara, who also wrote it. And I can't recommend this one as readily as Relic, because Relic is, at the end of the day, a very entertaining, emotional, accessible film. Uh, Amulet is not. Amulet is extremely slow, uh, very puzzling by design, difficult to parse. And has an ending that kind of left my brain warped around the back of my skull for a bit, and had like think think about it for a little while for me to really parse how I felt. Uh, in fact, Chris, who is in here on the podcast today, r- savaged it in his Sundance review. He hated this movie, uh, and I don't blame him. Uh, this is this is not an accessible film. It's not easy to watch. Uh, but I really liked Emulet. I had to sleep on it before deciding I liked it, but I did. It's about a uh, homeless immigrant living in London who is uh, given shelter by a nun in a woman's home where she's caring for her dying mother. So it's her second <laughs> dying mother horror film in a row. Uh, and slowly but surely she starts to realize something is wrong with the woman upstairs. And I'll leave it there because what it's actually about reveals itself very slowly. And I really like what about. I find what's about to be very chilling and very of the moment, but it's intentionally a, a mystery that is laid very, very deep and brought out at its own pace. So amulet requires attention, requires patience it requires you know you to meet it on its own terms and realize that it's not going to be a traditional horror film. But I ultimately really fell for it. Uh, that's Amulet, available for rental on all the usual suspects. All right, uh, another horror movie that I can recommend to pretty much everybody. This is uh, Impedagore, the new film from director Joko Anwar. He directed Satan's Slaves, a film I loved last year, and we t- I think I talked about it on the podcast a while ago. And, and Impedagore is an uh, Indonesian film, like Joko Anwar's other films, uh, about a woman who is attacked violently by man who tends tends to kill her uh she escapes uh the man is killed and while researching to find out why this could have happened she learns that she may have inheritance in a small village you know far from the city where she lives and heads out to, to her um to the old village to reclaim it and learns that very bad things are waiting in store for her there uh I think Joko Noir is the real deal between this and Satan Slaves. Uh, these are two of the best horror films I've seen in literally years. And what I like is that he's clearly a horror fan. He clearly knows the genre really well. Like he actively quotes the Texas Massacre in in uh, in uh Pettigrew. But he is not leaning on traditional cliches. Uh, these movies are incredibly scary uh, and very disturbing. Like some very upsetting things happen in the movie while never losing sight of them being a good time with the movies which is a really hard balance to pull off Uh, Empedagor is just a real blast in addition to being like spine chilling and I like that it's an Indonesian filmmaker making an Indonesian film that's set in Indonesia and like leans into that like this is a film made for Indonesian audiences like there are points where I have to pause it and google something not because i was confused because oh i want to learn more about what they're talking about or what that means and i learned more about indonesia from watching watching Impedagore than i thought i would uh so it's, i think it's a really awesome movie it's a shutter exclusive streaming on shutter with satan slaves also a shutter exclusive so if you want a really killer double feature uh satan slaves in Pedagore*. indonesian horror is here i'm very very excited by it you still pay the five bucks to get shutter <laughs> but if you have amazon you can watch crawl uh Alexander Aha's film about killer uh, alligators uh, attacking people in a flooded house during a hurricane. This came out uh late last, not late last year, uh, mid last year, and kind of surprised people because I know it got good reviews despite not being screened for critics. And I think it's a really terrific, really small little movie. It's a Kayla Scodelario uh, from the Rape Maze Runner movies is the lead here. And I think she's fantastic. Barry Pepper is her father. It's a very good dog movie. It's their dog. And they have to keep it safe from the alligators. And I love dogs. And spoiler alert, Dog Lives, very rare animal <laughs> attack movie where the dog lives. Uh, so feel free to watch this and not be worried about the dog at all the goddamn times. Uh, that is Crawl streaming on Amazon. Uh, I watched Devil's Gate on Netflix. This is, interestingly, the directorial debut from, from Zack Snyder's second unit director on a lot of his movies. I watched it because it popped up uh, on top of Netflix one day randomly. I don't know why. And it's uh Sean Ashmore. remember Sean Ashmore guys? He is a uh, rural police officer assisting a a uh, FBI agent looking for a missing person. Uh, it may or may not be in a, in Milo Amelia's basement. Uh, but once they get into the basement, they find that there is something more going on. The lead is very much buried here. It's uh, a supernatural twist. It's okay. It's fine. It has some good creature effects. Uh, the dog dies in this one. Sorry. Uh, so that, so watch crawl. If you love dogs, if you don't care about dogs, you can watch devil's gate on Netflix and goodness. I'm talking a lot. I am very sorry. Um, finally, I started rewatching the boys cause season two is arriving, uh, in a few weeks and my wife has not seen season one and Carl Urban is her, uh, ultimate crush right behind Dwayne Johnson. So we watched uh, the first two episodes of the boys. I spoke about the show in the past. I know Chris wrote our very negative review of it, but I think this show is, is really interesting and really funny. And maybe it doesn't connect all of its swings, but I, I admire the swings. Uh, I like that it is using superhero culture as a stand in for American culture. Cause it kind of has become that in many ways is, is an excuse to uh, really eviscerate, you know, anything that makes the writers angry in a way that I find both admirable and uh, contentious. But I ultimately think The Boys is a ton of fun uh, streaming on Amazon. Get ready for season two. I'm excited for it.
1: I still haven't seen season one. I got to I gotta get on that. You
4: should. Uh, Dan Trachtenberg did the pilot, and it's an exceptionally good pilot.
1: Yeah, no, I've heard that. Okay, yeah, maybe, maybe that'll be the next thing I dive into, because I, I, I do want to see it. I don't know why I never got around to it. But uh, you know what, I I think what it was is I read the comic, or I I got recommended the comic book many years ago. I think maybe by Dan Trachtenberg. <laughs> no, uh, you know, many like ten years ago or wh- whenever. and I started reading that, and I just did not like it at all. So uh, the I- show
4: was very different. I read I read the comic for a little while before dropping it. Uh, the show very wisely reinterprets the comics basic concept in a way that's far more palatable, far more character driven and far more emotionally interesting. So you even, the comic is barely a thing at this point.
1: Okay. Let's move on to Ben. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I've,
0: ju- I'm still in the middle of my lost rewatch, but uh, the only movie that I've really been uh, watching is something that I've seen uh, really only like maybe three times in my life, but it's such a great movie. And it is uh, Robert Zemeckis' Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is on Disney Plus right now. And um, I, my wife, I think, had seen this when she was young, like in, in elementary school or something, and maybe hadn't seen it since. And I watched it uh, for its 25th anniversary, which was in 2013, but haven't seen it in, what is that, seven years. So um, I just wanted to sort of refresh my uh, my brain on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And man, what a great movie this is. Uh, Bob Hoskins, I mean, not enough can be said about how incredible he is. I think we actually, um, I want to say it was uh, Josh Spiegel wrote, wrote a whole thing about how Hoskins essentially single-handedly created the template for modern blockbuster acting in this movie because this film came out in 1988, way before you know fully CG characters were the norm in Hollywood. And um, Hoskins just, owns this movie. He is so, I mean, his his physicality is perfect, uh, his his comedy timing is great. He also feels very much like he is just ripped straight out of a 1940s noir. He has that sort of um gravelly uh gravelly voice and and that that build that stocky build that um you know he looks like Edward G. Robinson or something like it. It's just it's it's so perfect for that uh part of the movie, which is this hard-boiled sort of noir story where all of the human actors take everything super super seriously but the rest of the movie is just this zany animated (laughs) really kind of nonsensical story um but and somehow this movie is not something that should work at all but somehow it all works wonderfully and it, it really just made me miss the robert zemeckis of this era i mean You know, we talked a lot about this, uh, how his obsession with technology has just, um, you know, put him down into this rabbit hole that he really hasn't been able to emerge from, see Welcome to Marwin, or rather don't see Welcome to Marwin. But, um, you know, this, to me, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is like the peak of his uh, obsession with technology and like the, the, uh, that's not, that's not right. It's the peak of the results of his obsession with technology blending, uh, animation and live action in, in 1988, when fax machines were like, you know, just coming out, basically, um, just thinking about how much of a technological leap that was, um, is an astounding achievement. And, You know, I I just don't think that anything Zemeckis has done since then, even Forrest Gump, where that movie sort of uh, uses CG and, and you know, visually enhances some stuff in some interesting ways to make Forrest look like he's interacting with historical figures along the way. I, I just don't think anything that he's done since this movie has combined his interests as successfully as Supreme Roger Rabbit. And that's not even, you know, talking about Christopher Lloyd's performance or like any of the other million terrific aspects of this movie so uh it's great it's who framed roger rabbit it's on disney plus right now
1: is is there any director that had such a like powerful early career i mean like you know he directed back to the future uh, the whole trilogy who framed roger rabbit he did uh forrest gump as you mentioned contact uh castaway and then like the second half of his career has been like Polar Express, Beowulf, Christmas Carol, Flight. Ugh.
0: Yeah, the, the one that uh, immediately comes to mind is Rob Reiner, yes. who had that, that incredible run of Stand by Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, uh, Misery, uh, and a Few Good Men, and and then you know he also had uh, Spinal Tap in there and uh, some other really good stuff, and then like you know his his mid to his basically his two thousands have just been. Um, disastrous seems too nice for for something like uh the bucket list and like the magic of bell isle and um movies like flipped and lbj which just like straight up don't exist so um <laughs> yeah, yeah it, i actually talk about a fall
3: i really like flipped actually
0: Brad, I can't <laughs> tell if this is a bit or not. If it is, it's a very funny no, one. No,
3: it re- it really isn't a bit. It's uh, flip. I think flipped is a very charming coming of age like uh, young young romance. I, and I I don't think it stands like up to you know his greatest works by any means. But it's it's I don't think it's a bad movie. Uh, I'll be honest, I have not
0: actually seen Flipped, so I can't dunk Ooh. on that movie. I um I'm someone
2: who really enjoyed flipped the book um, and watched the movie. I think the movie was just kind of a a really bland adaptation of a more interesting book. So I I can't say that Flipped, it it wasn't terrible, but it was uh, very disappointing, I remember.
3: Well, I think books are disappointing.
2: Books are disappointing.
1: I will come to Brad's defense. I saw Flipped in the theater. Um, it, It does feel like it's from a different time, but it isn't a bad movie.
3: Yeah, I, I, but I, it's think, also I, think, I think that's why I like it is because it, it feels like it, at the time and he, and now especially it feels like a movie that they don't really make anymore.
0: Yeah, I guess I was just more referring to like the incredible uh, different the gulf between the highs and yeah, lows. <laughs> um, that Rob Reiner is like right there next to Zemeckis for me as like the mainstream American filmmakers anyway who who have who fit that criteria. I'm looking sure.
4: at Reiner's IMD page right now, and it looks like uh, the first. H- Hint thing was wrong it was in 1994 with north the infamous uh elijah wood movie <laughs> that inspired the title of roger ebert's book i hated 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 this movie uh <laughs> but then he followed up with, with the american president which is a totally solid really nice rom-com uh then we have to go to like early 2000s where like alex and emma and rumor has it in the bucket list where it starts like that's where i think he really starts to fall apart but you can see the seeds of bad rob, rob reiner in north so hey,
1: wait but Tell me this, though, Jacob, like what like with Robert Zemeckis, I think we all have a good like handle on like what went wrong. What went wrong with Rob Reiner? My
4: honest guess, and this is me pulling the answer out of my rear end, is that um, he refused to change. He thought that the type of movie he made would be made forever. And he refused to like acknowledge audience taste, acknowledge that, you know, maybe the type of movie he made in 1984 um, and the way he made it didn't require a type of, you know, a change in attention or change in storytelling that um, Zemeckis was at least pursuing. I think Rob Reiner thought he could keep making Rob Reiner movies instead of evolving and changing what Rob Reiner could be. Like, look mm-hmm. at Steven Spielberg, uh, who is stayed relevant by always changing. You know, um, it's also Tim Burton problem. Tim Burton refused to change. <laughs> um, and I think, even, I think even the best filmmakers evolved and Rob Reiner never did.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Uh, and uh, you know, speaking of movies that they don't make, they wouldn't make anymore. I, I don't feel like Who Framed Roger Abbott is a movie that could be made today. And I'm not even just talking about the, the combination, the mashup of you know Warner Brothers properties with Disney properties and having like, like a whole gambit of that. I'm just like, this is like a very adult movie, but it's a kids movie.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. There's tons of sexual innuendo in here, and there's that really, really scarring sequence of that cute. Uh, innocent cartoon shoe that is just brutally murdered in front of everyone's eyes that really i mean left a, a mark on me when i was a kid and i can't imagine disney like okaying something like that these days um, plus judge
3: judge doom is more terrifying than almost any monster that has ever been in any kid's movie
0: <laughs> yeah i mean especially as a kid like you watch it now and christopher lloyd is really like dialing it up and it's it's really um Sort of amusing to watch him just like go all the way over the top, like so far that he's come all the way back around again. But as a kid, that you can't really like uh, pinpoint the the um, the campiness and that performance. It, it all just reads as real and terrifying, and it's 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 a really um, a fine line for him to to have been able to walk. You know, as an actor at that time, like knowing that he's playing to the cheap seats and and, you know, uh, calibrating his performance for one particular age group, even though, you know, older people might have walked out of that sort of scoffing at it a little bit. I, I think the fact that Judge Doom has, has left such a mark on an entire generation is uh, is evidence that he, you know, he walked that line
3: really, really well. What a great movie. What a, what a damn great movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Um, yes, yes. Okay. Fli- Flipped is a great movie. You are right.
1: <laughs> Brad, w- what have you been watching?
3: Uh, I binged both seasons uh, that are currently available of What We Do in the Shadows, the TV series adaptation of uh, Taika YTT and Jemaine Clement's mockumentary about vampire roommates and man- This show is uh, hilarious. Not only is it every bit as good as the original movie, I actually think that it improves upon the movie in a variety of ways, mostly because of how it uh, expands the world of what we do in the shadows to include many more uh, mythological and horror uh, creatures and monsters. But also the um, just the expansion of the main characters because um, sure some, uh, you know I would I would say that uh, Nandor one of the main characters is very similar to Taika Waititi's character, but I think uh, the expansion of the characters um, in the rest of the ensemble really enhances, especially Mark uh, Proch as the um, energy vampire Colin Robinson. All the stuff they do with him is brilliant, and it really adds just another level of hilariousness uh to to the proceedings um i i'm glad that this show just recently got nominated for some emmys uh i wish the cast was recognized obviously um but yeah it's it's supposed to be coming back for season three uh sometime next year and yeah if if you love the what we do in the shadows movie watch the show you will not be disappointed
4: hey hey brad i want to ask you one question uh, how happy are you to know that the Jackie De- Daytona episode was nominated for Best Writing Emmy?
3: Oh, my God. The Jackie Daytona episode <laughs> it was so good. I mean, aside from the fact that it has uh, Mark Hamill in it as Jim the Vampire, it's just, oh, God, that, that episode is is definitely one of my favorites. <laughs>
4: Yeah, so I, I, I think that may be uh, one of the funniest things I've seen in 2020, which, you know, it's been a dire year, so I needed those laughs.
3: It, it honestly felt like that episode felt like it could have been like an entire indie movie, like, like where he just goes off and lives his own life somewhere the entire time and gets caught up with the small town and the volleyball team. It's, uh, it's so good. <laughs> Um, what else have I been watching? Uh, I also watched uh, a few episodes of Muppets Now, which is the new Muppet series uh, available on Disney Plus starting this weekend. Um, it's They're being released one episode each week. The first season uh, is supposed to have six episodes. And uh, there's a review on Slashman if you want to check it out. Um, more, I'm more disappointed than I am satisfied because it's an intriguing concept where... Basically, the Muppets are supposed to be delivering this new show to Disney Plus. Scooter is behind on getting the episodes finished and uploaded, so there's a somewhat incomplete, um, you know, off the wall kind of uh, approach to these shows where they're uh, not finished and they're still working on like things like the graphics and talking about fixing things um, and. The Muppets, some of the Muppets essentially have their own YouTube shows or YouTube channels where Miss Piggy has a lifestyle show and Pepe the King Prawn has a game show. Uh, Swedish Chef is, is on a show that does cooking collaboration and competition. Um, and so, like, the characters fit into these little mini shows that they've created for Muppets now, but the spirit of the overall Muppet comedy just isn't quite there. Like, it seems like some of, these, some of the writers understand... The characters well enough and like what they should be doing but it's for for me it's the overall comedy vibe that just isn't landing it doesn't feel as good as something like the muppet show or even the uh muppets tonight from the 90s um and it's just it doesn't resemble what i love most about the muppets the only thing that made me laugh consistently and i think is the the best part of the show is all the stuff with Swedish chef because Chef chef's one of my favorite muppet characters but man, the way he interacts with the guests that they have on the show, and just the way they use his Swedish gibberish, especially because they um, make graphics out of what he says sometimes, to, in order to like list the ingredients that he's talking about, and that stuff was was really funny to me. But otherwise, it just it mostly just feels like a, a misfire. Um, I I was really disappointed disappointed by this. Peter, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to watch this yet, because I know you're a big Muppets fan.
1: I I haven't gotten a chance to watch this yet. And this is disappointing to hear, Brad. This is disappointing because I feel like the Muppets need a win. Like they had that movie, the 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 Muppets, and then ever since then, everything that's been coming out of the you know the that team has just not been good. Like the uh, Muppets Most Wanted was horrible. That ABC series that was trying to copy like The Office was not in the spirit of the Muppets and, and uh, the Josh Gad thing kind of fell apart. And then now this,
3: yeah, it's, so it's pretty frustrating. I mean, they just, I feel like they need to find somebody who really understands not just these characters, but just their, their g- general spirit. You know, I, I wish that there was somebody out there like the team that brought Looney Tunes back for HBO Max Cause that, that's a revival that I was supremely impressed by because they really tapped into what made those classic cartoons great and revived it in a way that felt um, both refreshing and familiar. And th- this just feels like they're trying to, to do too much to bring Muppets into the modern era um, and just deliver something for the YouTube generation.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to check it out this weekend. Uh, what else have you been watching, Brad?
3: Um, I also watched the first season of Love on the Spectrum, uh, which is a new documentary series that Netflix uh, debuted this past weekend. Uh, they imported it from Australia, Australia. And it's a show that follows um, a variety of um, people in Australia who are on the autism spectrum and are trying to date. And I, I have always been fascinated by documentaries about um, autism and Asperger's because it's such a broad, you know, literal spectrum of the, the different traits uh, that people with autism and Asperger's have um, to the point where... A, um, a lot of people in the community and in general, they don't really they, they've tried to veer away from acknowledging it as uh, a disorder and more so just a difference between people um, because it's it's not always necessarily something that can easily be regarded as a disability. And this show is really the perfect example of that, because there are some people with autism and Asperger's on the series who. Where if you were to talk to them or meet them in real life, you you wouldn't immediately think, "Oh, this person, you know, has autism or or Asperger's." And so to to um, watch them on a show like this, it's just I think it's really eye opening and really helps uh, people further understand what what this means and how how these people are, you know, because it's so many times they're disregarded as quote unquote not normal. And some of these people just seem like they have their life together and understand things better than other people I know who are just socially awkward or or choose to be, you know, um, just just the way they are in social interactions and and not and make an effort. And so, uh, but and because it's a dating show, it really it's there's definitely some awkwardness as they try to get to know each other. Um, there's some things that are really funny because uh, some people with autism are very. Uh, blunt about what they say and how they say it, which is especially um, funny in a, in a dating scenario. Um, But it's, uh, it's a, it's a short series. Uh, There's five episodes for the first season. Uh, They're already working on a second season. I looked up afterwards. So uh, if you um, are interested in, in learning about stuff like this and also just watching, you know, adorable dating shows, love on the spectrum is, is really great.
1: Brad, I, I have some questions about this.
3: Yes. Now,
1: first of all, uh i i'm very interested in the, like the core of this like you know seeing how autistic people uh you know adapt to everyday life that's something that i've that's compelled me to watch like shows like parenthood there's this documentary called life animated that follows this autistic uh teenager who he has his first love and he you know it, it's um so i'm i'm interested in that but the thing that worries me about a show like this is like part of the the joy if there is something if if you can describe <laughs> the enjoyment out of a dating show a dating show as joy is two things i think the awkwardness and the drama and i feel like the awkwardness that you touch on i think i would feel bad like usually i like revel in that and it's like something you can like laugh at and really enjoy but i think i would feel bad enjoying that in in a show about, uh, you know, autistic people.
3: You know, it's, you know I, that's one thing that I thought about too, and I, I wondered how it was going to be approached, but it's approached so delicately, and uh, the awkwardness is, it's funny in the same way that any awkwardness is, but not in a way that feels mean-spirited. And it's and it's mostly because, just because they, you know, they, they put in that extra effort to, like, try to understand what's going on, or, or because they are so uh, blunt and don't necessarily give or receive social cues this, the same way um, that people without autism do that it just it, it, it makes it more more interesting and if anything it actually I think it actually makes it more charming because you you see you know how certain people connect because of you know the different traits they have ba- based on where they are on the on the spectrum and so it's um, it's funny but never in a way where you feel like you are laughing at them you know be, because they're uh, weird as as someone might say.
1: Yeah. Okay. What else have you been watching? Uh,
3: and I also got around to watching The Old Guard, um, which uh, has been talked about on here before. Uh, I heard the action was good. I love Charlize Theron and the uh, concept sounded intriguing. And I'm just kind of in the middle on this one. Uh, I know some people I've seen on film Twitter have been really... Uh, liking this and praising it. I know Chris really didn't like it very much and was kind of on the, the outside with that. And I, I just land somewhere in the middle. I, I do think it has some good action sequences. I think it makes what could have been a really cool concept and kind of makes it a little too uh, bland and maybe too grounded for for what it is. Uh, because uh, it, it almost it has a similar vibe that I guess Extraction did. And the action goes for a same kind of hard hitting, bloody, violent kind of um, style, but it for a, a, a show that has a concept that is fantastical and sci fi in nature, it doesn't quite feel like a movie that fits in that genre. And it, maybe that's the idea is to maybe make it something that's more grounded and, and realistic. But I think it just takes some of the some of the life out of what could have been something really cool if it was maybe a little more stylized. And of course, it does that thing where like it kind of just. Uh, tells a pretty generic story all to set up uh, you know a sequel where things are supposed to get really good. I was just like eh, I, I don't know. <laughs> so it's it, it, it's it's fine. I'm I, I was never bored necessarily, but I just wasn't over the moon for it. Okay, let's move to H T.
1: You're gonna talk about the adventures of Dine Dine.
2: <laughs> it's that Dine
1: I tried. I tried.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to call it Tintin from now on so people won't be like, wow, what a snob. Um, anyways, I uh, watched the Indiana Jones movies and the adventures of Tintin ahead of my recording 21st Century Spielberg podcast with Chris. And I have a confession that I made first on the podcast with Chris. Um when I saw Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull back when it came out, I had only until then seen uh, Raiders of the, Last, of the Lost Ark. So wow. I hadn't seen Temple of Doom and The Last Crusade. I didn't admit it until now because I knew everyone would yell at me. <laughs> and, and even actually when I told my mom that, she was like, what? How is that possible? I'm like, well, this is probably your fault, if anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love your first reaction is to blame your mom.
2: And, well, you know, it's her, she should have been the one to show me these movies if she's going <laughs> to act so shocked that I haven't seen them. Anyways.
1: <laughs> Wait, so this is your first time seeing Temple of Doom and Last Crusade? Crusade?
2: Yes. And um I watched so I watched them all back to back and uh seeing them all together was really fun. It just kind of get really gets you into the mood of Indiana Jones and uh immersion that in that whole pulp adventure um tone that the franchise is going for. And um, I will say, Temple of Doom uh, does have some parts that really don't age well today. And I know that's something that everyone genuinely agrees on. Um, But I I think that Temple of Doom um, is probably the most disposable of the Indiana Jones movies because the other... three actually do feel like they're part of one long arc. And this is something that I would, I kind of said in defense of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Um, and I, cause it feels like a, a continuation of the series versus Temple of Doom just kind of feels like a little one-off adventure that happens to include Indiana Jones. And I yeah. have to say, I really did not enjoy the sort of screwball dynamic between um, Harrison Ford and Kate Capshaw. I saw what they were going for. But I didn't like it. And I, I honestly found her a little bit unwatchable. But yeah, Short Round is the best. And um, I, uh, yeah, so Temple of Doom, you know, probably on par with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is going to be my, my big hot take. in terms, I don't think you know, that's <laughs> a hot take,
1: though. <laughs> oh, like when, when, people, when Crystal Skull came out and people were, like, ragging on, like, nuked the fridge. And I'm like, this movie has, like, them going off a waterfall that's, like... <laughs> what is it? it looks
2: like a mile high above the water and they survived a it. helicopter no they jumped out of a plane oh, wow. with, a, with a raft like a yeah that's
1: a, what it was yeah
2: and like that's what they use as a parachute which is yeah much less uh realistic than the nuclear fridge
1: <laughs> um you know it is interesting you know when they first made the indiana jones movies i think it was the correct me if i'm wrong jacob probably knows this but i think this was like george lucas and steven spielberg's attempt to do kind of like their own james bond kind of thing is that right jacob
4: yeah uh spielberg in the past uh has talked about you'd a big james bond fan but when you're making james bond movie you're working for producers so they want to do their own thing
1: yeah so like it makes sense that temple of doom was kind of like this own adventure it, it like kind of felt like a bond movie where it's like this own like thing but then it, it's funny in the end they ended up becoming a movie series like any other movie series of action <laughs> movies where it's connected. um, Yeah. So uh, w- you, what would you rank as the lowest is it temple of doom or crystal skull?
2: Honestly, temple of doom. And um, I feel like I'm going to get wow. hate for that, but yeah, I just, it's just because it does feel like the most disposable of the Indiana Jones movies and crystal skull while it does a lot of bad things. um, It does feel like a part of the series and, uh, yeah, there's part. I,
0: I agree with you, HD.
2: Oh, yay! Thanks, Ben.
4: <laughs> I do think Temple of Doom is trash, so I'm, I'm Team HD here. Yeah.
1: Hey, I, I do think Temple of Doom is trash. And I think it's problematic, but I will say that it has higher highs. Like uh, Mola Ram as a villain is is awesome. Uh, the minecart chase is like just at least from a pure like watching this as a kid perspective, it's just so much fun. Like, I, I feel like there's more hires than there is, I guess it's probably lower lows, too. Though.
2: Yeah. I don't I'd know. I'd say the lowers yeah. are low, and the highs maybe not be as high as you remember. I don't
3: think we can call Temple of Doom trash, because at the end of the day, it's still a Steven Spielberg adventure movie starring Harrison Ford yeah. as Indiana Jones. And so it has plenty of problems. It hasn't aged well in certain aspects, but it is still a really good action-adventure movie.
4: But yeah. even Spielberg himself has essentially disowned it at this point. So I agree with him. I agree with Steven Spielberg. Temple of Doom is trash.
3: Steven Spielberg disowned Hook, too. And I don't give a shit. I still love that movie. Hook
4: <laughs> is bigger trash than anything we've talked about so far. Hook is hey, the worst film Spielberg's ever made.
3: That, that is wrong.
1: But uh, Steven Spielberg also disowned the guns in ET, and he was wrong there, too. So.
2: Okay. Well, <laughs> we should all have. Seen, a- what have you done? done? Spielberg podcast, which Chris <laughs> uh, runs um but yes indiana jones movies they're good that's my biggest (laughs) take of all of them um and yes uh i also you know rewatched adventures of tintin great perfect movie um i don't really have anything else to add about that because it's just it's just so fun um
1: i gotta interrupt to say one more thing that just came to my head anything goes the opening number of the temple of doom incredible really no like where where, where where the poison and then like the whole co- okay. choreography of that is like just like a great opening sequence
2: it's fun um no,
3: one, no one's gonna agree with me here. i i don't i think that sequence is one of, is one of the parts that i'm like eh, um but oh, but all I like but it. like the minecart sequence and the the rope bridge and all that yeah there's there's plenty of good stuff in that movie I'm sorry, HG. <laughs> okay.
2: uh, all right. Uh, um, last thing I watched recently is Ocean Waves. This is the long lost, I guess long lost is kind of a misnomer, but it is the long lost uh, Studio Ghibli movie that has only until 2014. Um, ever aired on TV in Japan. It's a made-for-TV movie from Studio Ghibli. And it's actually a really interesting experiment that Ghibli launched back in the early 90s um, when they gave its youngest animators, all in their early 20s and 30s, a chance to make a cheap, quick film to show what they are made of. Um, And ultimately, it was kind of a failed experiment. They went over budget and over schedule. And when it aired on local TV in 1993, it didn't really make much of a splash but um, and, and this movie um, only was able to arrive stateside in 2014 when it got a Blu-ray uh, remaster. And then it has uh, been released on HBO Max, where it's part of the Ghibli collection. And it is kind of one of the more, it's definitely the most subdued Ghibli movie um, of the whole catalog. It's very much just this really slow moving, uh, softly animated uh, slice of life film about two teenage um, Boys who are best friends whose friendship is tested when a new transfer from Tokyo uh, arrives, and um, they both have they, all, they are all involved in this love triangle. But despite a really, really paper thin plot that's stretched over 72 minutes and kind of a generic story that's told through many, many flashbacks, um, this is a really interesting movie in how queer coded it is. And I think it might be. Studio Ghibli's most queer movie even if that is unintentional. It kind of became something like that by accident because the the two main protagon- the main protagonist um and his best friend share much not only much more chemistry than they either of them do with the uh, female lead. There are just some moments that seem to hint at something that is just much more deep and um more connected between the two of them. And uh, it plays a lot, like just a, the, the scenes between them play a lot, just like a straight up romance. There is one scene where they, in their first, the flashback to their first meeting, where they're in this art classroom surrounded by these Roman busts and they're bathed in the soft pink sunlight. And I was like, am I watching a scene from Call Me By Your Name? And um, that one point, the protagonist like narrates that uh, he started to think of, this friend uh differently than all his other friends and it seems very much like there is very much queer coded context that's seeded throughout the film and it culminates in this big um scene by the dock where they talk about their relationship and it's there's like this lonely sax that's playing and it's very romantic and beautifully colored and um it's just it's just so interesting that um Julie made this film that feels just like so uh LGBT and like queer coded. And uh, then they just kind of tack on a very heteronormative uh, ending at the end. But um, it's fascinating to see like if they actually went all the way and um, leaned into some of those more uh, queer aspects, if, if they had they would have given us the first ghibli queer film but yeah this is ocean waves it's a very nostalgic very um beautifully animated and uh pastel softly lit film that is a short watch um but is um not one of the not doesn't really stand next to the the all-timers of studio ghibli classics but it is really interesting um how different it is and how subdued it is compared to the rest of the ghibli catalog and it kind of um feels very refreshing in that sense. So that's Ocean Waves, and that's streaming now on HBO Max.
1: Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this week?
3: Some new things I was able to try. Um, I got my hands on a box of Tropical Fruit Loops, uh, which is a new variation on Fruit Loops with tropical flavors. Uh, mango, orange, banana, and... Uh, was it lime? I think I forgot the the tropical Froot Loops flavors, but either way, um, it's not remarkably different from, uh Froot Loops. Um, but it, it does have like just a general vague like tropical flavor to it because fruit loops in general even though they say each of the pieces has a different flavor there's not that much of a difference between them it just it's just a these are fruit loops and they are all the same and they kind of taste like artificial fruit and this is roughly the same thing where it's like this is fruit loops but they vaguely taste like tropical fruit um so different colors not too much of a different flavor but i just wanted to try them because more often than not i veer towards more uh liking tropical fruits than i do you know, what would consider to be the regular fruits like apples and strawberries and blueberries uh, and whatnot. So this is something that uh, is only available at uh, Albertsons grocery stores and whatever their um, sister grocery stores are. I, we don't have Albertsons out here, so I actually had to buy this online. So I'm not necessarily sure which stores are, are covered under that banner. So you'll, you'll just have to look into it if you want some tropical fruit Loops. Um, I also tried, uh, Hostess has, um, a new cupcake. Uh, Everyone knows the Hostess cupcakes with the chocolate ones with the frosting on top with the white swirl. And, uh, over the years they've come out with a lot of different variations on them. And the most recent one is a s'mores version, um, of those cupcakes that has, has the traditional chocolate frosting on top, but it has a, uh, graham flavored, uh, cupcake, um, outside and then it has a marshmallow flavored cream on the inside and uh i honestly think these are probably the best version of the hostess cupcakes just because i love s'mores and the graham cracker flavor really makes the uh the cupcake uh ha- it just has a better taste to it it's ju- it just has that slight honey graham flavor uh so if you're a s'mores fan uh you can try and uh, get a hold of those in stores i'm pretty sure they're all over the place but i got mine at walmart Um, and then, uh, Ben and Jerry's has an ice cream flavor called Netflix and chilled that uh, I was finally able to get a hold of. I was looking for it for a while and had never seen it and finally got it to try it out. It's, um, Ben and Jerry's. So it has a great, um, you know, a unique mix of different, different things inside of it. So it's actually a, um, a peanut butter ice cream that has sweet and salty pretzel swirls and, uh, fudge, fudge brownie chunks in it. Uh, and so all those flavors mix together really well. Normal. I don't normally get, uh, ice cream or, um, snacks that combine sweet and salty. I, d- I, usually like to keep them separate. Um, but this one really, really does work. The, the pretzel swirls are, are awesome in this ice cream. So, uh, yeah, definitely look for that in the, uh, the freezer section,
1: what do you mean by pretzel swirls? Are there like pieces of pretzels?
3: Um, so kind of, but it's like, it's more there. I I there are like little pretzel chunks that inevitably get in there, but it's more of like um, like a pretzel that has been softened and like swirled through the ice cream, essentially. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, it's it was I was not expecting that, but it, it does make it uh, it makes the ice cream smooth rather than being chunky and crunchy, and it's it's really good. Oh, and uh, Taco Bell recently came out with this grilled cheese burrito. Did you try that? I did, and it's so good. It is one of my favorite things that Taco Bell has done recently. Uh, it's pretty much just a regular burrito. They have seasoned beef and seasoned rice and their, their cheese and crunchy red um, tortilla strips in it. But it also has chipotle sauce with um, the usual nacho cheese and sour cream. And then on the outside of the, the tortilla, when they put it inside of the um, – whatever you want to call the machine that they use to flatten the burritos and grill the tortillas. Uh, is it? Does anybody know what that's called? I don't know what that's called. A tortilla press, maybe? A press? Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. What um, so, yeah, but so when they do that, they put a layer of cheese on either side of the burrito that's touching the press so that it has a um, a crispy la- uh, layer of cheese outside of it that, believe it or not, actually does add uh, to it being better than a normal burrito. So, yeah, Taco Bell has a good burrito right now. Go check it out. Hot take.
1: Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? Uh,
4: A few weeks ago, I talked about I was going to start some RPG campaigns uh, online and see how that went. And I want to give a brief update. Uh, They're going really well. Uh, I'm really enjoying um, holding games over Zoom more so than I thought I would. And I I think the movie fans appreciate that the Alien game I'm running, which is based on the Alien film franchise, One of the things the rule book suggests is try to find ways to split up the group and make sure that people are more isolated and alone. And at the end of the last session, which was the second session of the game, every single member of the group, without me any kind of prompting, all decided to go in separate directions across the alien colony where they were. So it ended up being like everybody not intentionally seemed to just act out like they would in a movie, which is everybody's gonna start getting incredibly uh killed by aliens starting in our next session uh we're also running a game called blades in the dark which is a fantasy crime game and uh, brad's actually a member of my game for that uh did you en- have you enjoyed the first sessions brad
3: i have it's it's been really cool the um the game we're playing is it's called blades in the dark and it's like it's this uh a heist game set in like a fantasy world and uh, it's it's really fun it's and I, one thing that i was most worried about was just getting used to the rules and like uh just generally vibing with the rpg game style it's something that i've you know known about from afar but haven't really particip- participated in in a proper way uh but jacob has made it like so easy and seamless where like the first round we did was essentially like a tutorial heist so that we could all get used to the rules and like what our characters can do and how the future sessions will work. And so it's it's been really fun because like we have, you know, lots of information at our disposal that we can use, but it's easy to like ask, you know, can we do this? Am I is it possible to use this? And like the way the flow of the story went, yeah, as I found out after the first session, it's so cool because there are things that Jacob plans for, like that he wants us to to go on as far as like our journey and stuff, but he easily improvises if one of us makes a decision that takes us on a completely different trajectory. And so it's just, it's really, really fun. And I've been enjoying it a lot.
4: Yeah. I, I try not to plan too far ahead. It was, I, as I tell my game groups, I want to be as surprised playing this game as you guys are. Uh, so like I have a big, like, word doc google doc full of like if this happens maybe this they'll find this if they go down this hallway this guy's down here but i don't know what they're going to do when they meet that guy i don't know what they're going to do when they encounter that vault and need to break into i know what the vault is i know how to break it open on the consequences of that action but i don't know how they'll go about doing it and that to me is extremely exciting and uh, brad equipped himself quite well um and we're playing again this weekend with comic-con uh, kind of threw off our next game uh but yeah i'm I'm very very excited because uh they ended the game in a, in a place where they have acquired uh something of great importance to a city politician, and I'm gonna hand it off to his political opponent and i'm I'm excited to see where this takes them, what they'll do next,
3: yeah
1: sounds cool uh by the way, I think it's called the tortilla press from my my google searching there we go is what uh the burrito press, or whatever it's called, if you were wondering, you know, you don't have to send us an email. We we figured it out.
2: Before we move on, um, I wanted to ask Jacob some advice, actually, um, sure. because my friends and I are actually planning to start to do a, uh, RPG one shot, um, that's going to be centered around Pokemon training, basically, Ooh. and um, so I, bunch of us had never have never done like, RPG, um play at all. And only two of us in our group have. So do you have any advice for like first time players?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll give you uh, two pieces of main advice. Uh, One is that it is okay to pause and say, I'm confused, or I don't know what to say here, or what would I do? um think of a game as a writer's room where you are chiefly in charge of writing your character or or you know in your character's journey but if you ever have a moment where it's like i don't know what i'm going to do here I don't, I don't know what the um solution here is there's no shame in, in like pausing it or and parsing out and talking out like my character's from here so maybe he'd do this and get feedback and don't be afraid to make it a collaborative thing you're telling a story together you know you're not trying to impress each other you're trying to work together another piece of advice is that um Rules systems are there for a reason in that they give a game structure and give a purpose and uh, keep, keep it from being just a total game of like making it up as you go along. But rules should be treated as flexible enough to not interfere with you having a good time. Uh, and this should be whoever's running the game um, should keep this in mind of um, make sure that player comfort and player fun uh, is treated more importantly than, you know, rules minutia, especially when you're first learning it.
2: Mm, okay. Thank you.
4: You're welcome.
1: Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at Slash Film.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at Slash And write and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. Hey, Peter. Uh, Jacob, I have my my food is about to come here, so I'm, I'm probably gonna have to bow out. I'm not your gonna food be able to...
4: can wait, Peter, because I've opened up the graduate book of insult, offense, interfrontery, sharper torch, for posts, costy clips, and impolite put downs by our main man Louis A. Safian, to page three hundred and forty five. Losers, <clears throat> losers. Hey, Peter, you're so fond you're so fond of hard luck. You run halfway to meet it.
1: Um. I don't, I don't get it.
4: Peter, you're so fond of hard luck, you run halfway to meet it.
1: Peter, have you not learned yet <laughs> to never,
0: ever admit when you don't get something? Because he just repeats it.
1: Jacob, that one's hilarious. I, I think it yeah. is, too.
4: Because, Peter, the, the joke is that you uh, meet your bad luck, you don't evade it. You actually run toward it. Uh, as the joke reads, you're so fond of hard luck, you run halfway to meet it. Uh. Uh, well, Ben... Ben, just as he's about to make uh, both ends meet, something breaks in the middle.
0: <laughs> All
4: right. Uh, H.T., uh, she had a fine job tramping on <laughs> grapes to make wine, then she developed fallen arches.
2: Oh.
4: <laughs> See, the, the joke is that arches are part of feet.
2: Uh, uh, uh. Ah.
1: Yeah, yeah. oh, I thought they were part of
4: McDonald's signs. Peter, as the joke says, "She had <laughs> a fun job tramping yeah. on grapes to make wine. Then she developed fallen arches. It's yeah. a very funny joke. It's, it's so funny. It. Um, Brad, uh, he's the guy that who that always gets me, to the I party guess. after the
1: liquor's run out.
3: <laughs> <laughs> or I, could, Peter, I or oh, me, or maybe can... Maybe he should my just alcohol. set his
1: alarm earlier and show up on time, Brad. You see, you see Peter, the... Peter, Peter, Peter,
4: the joke is not that Brad didn't have a timer. The joke is that he shows up and the alcohol is gone. Do I need to read it again?
3: What?
2: Are you arguing <laughs> with the jokes of this phenomenal book, Peter?
3: I think Louis A. Saving has proven time and time again that his jokes are sound and hilarious. Yeah,
4: well, all of us prepared our cuckoo clocks. Now they back out and say, what time is it?
3: Oh, boy. <laughs>